Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the concept of a post-materialist social order. With me is Dr. Neil Grossman, who is an Emeritus Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He is the author of Conversations with Socrates and Plato, How a Post-Materialist Social Order Can Solve the Challenges of Modern Life and Ensure Our Survival. He is also author of The Spirit of Spinoza, Healing the Mind. Welcome, Neil. Thank you. Good to be here. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for coming to Albuquerque. When we think of a post-materialist social order, I guess it's fair to say that here in the uh, 21st century, we live in a culture that is largely materialist, so yes. we would have a long way to go. Yes. It's materialist in two senses, I think. One is the academic sense that the leading scholars and theorists tend to be materialist atheists. <laughs> but also in the day-to-day um, -day sense and what people value and what they desire are material things. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, status, which I look at as a material thing, and, and, and money, of course. Mm -hmm. These are the things that, that run our present uh, culture. Um, when people come back from the near-death experience, their values change 180. And part of the difficulty they have readjusting to this culture is because the values of this culture, the materialist values of this culture, are diametrically opposite to what they experienced in the state of heightened reality in the near-death experience, mm -hmm. where everything there is an expression of or based upon unconditional love. Mm -hmm. So your concept of a post-materialist social order would be a, a culture, a society, based on the realities that people who have had the yes. near-death experience come back and report. Exactly. E exactly. Mm -hmm. What would a social order look like mm -hmm. that near-death experiences might not mind so much coming back to? Yeah. You know, many of them are, are upset to find themselves back. Uh, yes, I have, in, in my own therapy practice, worked with people, oh. uh, typical business people who uh, are engaged in, you know, tiny little white lies and cheating, which is normal part of business yes. culture. Yes, and, it is. and they come back after a near-death experience, and, and, and they know they can't live the way they used to live, but they don't know how to change their life either because all their old habits are still there. Are still there. And the environment in which they find themselves reinforces mm -hmm. only their own habits. Yeah. So you are a contemporary philosopher who takes the near-death experience seriously. Yes. You're looking at the philosophical implications of the near-death experience, and you've written this marvelous 800-page book, which shows you in dialogue with four of the greatest thinkers of humanity, Plato and Socrates, but also Spinoza and my hero, William James. Yes. Uh, and discussing, you know, what society could be like based based on these findings, which are, of course, didn't exist when these great thinkers were alive. Uh, basically correct. Although, I, I know although, Plato wrote about... Right. I mean, the first near-death experience yeah. uh, recorded is, is in Plato. And William James, in his Varieties... Uh, Right, a lot about the mystical experience. Yeah, sorry, a lot about the mystical experience, yeah. which he takes to be real, um, and which is very much akin to the near-death experience. Yeah, it's practically well. They come back with the same values, mm -hmm. <laughs> basically. Yeah, uh, and something else they come back with, which is, uh, and this is hard to get across sometimes, the self that they experience themselves as being when they're not in their body, in the near-death experience context, is a wider, more expanded version of the self, that the, mm -hmm. of the waking self that mm -hmm. we experience. 
they will even say that the difference is as great as is the difference between the waking self and the dream self. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about ontologi ontological levels and the experience in the near-death experience state of consciousness is experienced as vastly more real mm -hmm. than this. Mm -hmm. in, in other words, dying is like waking up from a dream. That's what people say. That's how they re uh -huh. report it. Uh, but they're waking up into a reality that's not only greater than experience as greater than this one, but is based on unconditional love. Mm -hmm. Those are the values that they learn, and what they experience, at least the deeper ones, is the interconnectedness of all beings. So this sense we have in the waking consciousness that we are separate selves, mm -hmm. um, uh, with the self encapsulated somewhere is uh, be probably two inches here behind the eyeball, um, that is seen as an illusion, as not real. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't see any reason why we cannot have a social order based on what is fundamentally real, which is the interconnectedness of all beings um, and uh, the unconditional love that uh, if I experience you as myself, right, that is what love uh, is. Well, now, the world's great religions were all, I think, they, they founded all, they by mystics, teach, yes. and they pretty much They do. all teach that. But this is a little different, because now we've got tens of thousands of people, I should think by now, have, have had recorded near-death yes. experiences. So we have a, a database. Yes, and, and this is what, you know, you don't have to you know, go into some monastery for 25 years, you know, and meditate, or remove mm -hmm. yourself from the world yeah. to have this kind of... Uh, experience and ordinary people are having these extraordinary experience mm -hmm. um, and uh, yes we have a database <laughs> and, 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 and we have it it's multicultural and so we, we, we can look and it's very interesting there are some cultural inf mm -hmm. uh, influences but uh, there's a sameness that pervades uh, all the experiences so in a sense your book Conversations with Socrates and Plato. It's sort of like a, a, an updated version of Plato's Republic, talking about the ideal society. It it it, it might be. I, I don't want to, want to think of myself necessarily as as reworking what <laughs> I, I, is my favorite all time book ever writ written. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think, but there's one difference that Plato was thinking of uh, in terms of the Greek city states. Yes, and asked the question. How can a city-state run that's run by spiritually enlightened beings hold its own against neighboring states that aren't so governed, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but this book describes a world order, not just one part of the world. So it's the whole world has to yeah. be in on this or it's not going to happen. <laughs> so, so, so you're just imagining, you know, yeah. uh, what would life be like uh, if we had a heaven on earth? Basically, yes. Mm -hmm. And the first rule, as I recall, is that everybody would always speak the truth. There would be no deceptions. There, in fact, there could be no deceptions. The idea of deceiving another person would be an impossibility. You know, it's, it's interesting to put it that way, and, and, I, and I think that, that's right. I think there, there are many ways you can put it. In talking to near-death experiencers, and I find this happening to myself as I get older, um, when I um, I can't watch episodes on television where there's deception going on, mm -hmm. uh, where, where somebody is trying to lie. Which to get, is sort of the basis and, of every situation yeah, comedy. And, 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 <laughs> and that's what NDEers, near-death experiencers, yeah. uh, it... it it just it grates against them to see deception and yeah. lying mm -hmm. in any form. There's no template for for lying uh, outside of the body, right? You can't uh, you can't fool uh, the divine being, right? And nobody tries to <laughs> mm -hmm. Be, because your thoughts are known directly. Yeah, it's I, like I, everyone I is telepathically aware. I I, I I think I think as you know, I don't believe there can be a literal description of what it's what it's like there because uh, it's beyond words. because it's beyond words exactly that, mm -hmm. that's the first thing that every near-death experiencer and mystic says that 
you can't really talk about it or you can't really say it in words. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, that doesn't stop them from, from talking. And so the words become pointers, not literal um, uh, uh, descriptions. Uh, descriptors. Yeah. But the sense was that their inner life, their thoughts and emotions, are as visible to other spirits mm -hmm. as clothes are to us mm -hmm. when we see a person. Mm -hmm. So there's no point in hiding yeah. or trying to conceal. It's like what people sometimes describe as seeing the aura. Yeah, yeah, basically. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, basically. So, so nobody I think what can hide. Right. So I think one of the early chapters is, is online, uh, that yeah. how children are taught to lie by misreporting uh, their feelings, mm -hmm. their, their inner life. As uh, soon as they learn to speak. To speak. To speak. They learn to use language. Language is, is the uh, vehicle by which people deceive. That's right. It can be a vehicle by which people express what is their truth mm -hmm. uh, ins inside them. Um, but in our culture, our culture rewards uh, the liar, the con, the con artist. Mm -hmm. and the deep history about that. Um, in, in some sense, they're almost uh, glorified. Yeah. I, I, the guy who gets away with something. You know, uh, well, that goes back, of course, to Homer and Odysseus. He yeah, is, yes. <laughs> the Trojan horse. That, that's was, right. Was considered, you know, the uh, a great heroic moment in uh, uh, Greek. Uh, tradition, yeah, and and in fact, throughout the Iliad and the Odyssey, <clears throat> uh, Odysseus is constantly you know, pulling tricks on people. I I think that even the word Odyssey or Odysseus, the man of many turnings. Mm -hmm. So so we have uh, very early in Western culture this image of yeah. uh, a a person who uh, it becomes successful through deception. Through deception, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, and that was probably a part of our evolutionary process, mm -hmm. right? To develop the, the, our wits, yeah. develop the mind, mm -hmm. uh, the, the cleverness part. And you find it in the Bible as, as well, now that I think about it. Abraham, the founder of the Abrahamic traditions, goes to Egypt with his wife, Sarah. And uh, the Egyptian pharaoh uh, takes a liking to her, even though I think she's probably a hundred years old or so <laughs> at, at, at this point. So a Abraham uh, pretends that she's not his wife so that he, he doesn't displease the Pharaoh. And uh, I, re I believe the Pharaoh takes Sarah to bed or something along those lines. Or maybe, he, you know, there's a dispute because Abraham has lied to Pharaoh. Uh, so it goes back uh, uh, yeah. in both the Greek tradition and the Judeo-Christian tradition where some of the religious heroes are dishonest. Yes. Or cultural heroes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess a question that a philosopher should ask is, well, is this by nature or by nurture? Mm -hmm. right? are, are humans somehow hardwired to lie and to deceive or to use language in that way? And uh, I believe the answer is no. Mm -hmm. I, I see no reason why we cannot have a social order that's in harmony with what we know about the divine. Mm -hmm. um, and if it ends up not being possible, it's certainly a worthy goal uh, to strive for. Yeah. If you look at the uh, economic and political spheres, right, that's where lying and deceit is most dominant, mm. you know, most dominant. Is that necessary? Can we have the the economics of a country and the politics run yeah. by honest people, by people who don't lie? I'm pretty sure that ethical specialists would all agree with you. They would all say lying is unethical, not only unethical, but it often turns out to be bad for business, bad for governments. Uh, people usually are not able to keep those secrets. Yes. Uh, they get exposed anyway, and somebody is then exposed as a liar. And, and yet we also have another standard, which is that uh, governments in particular uh, need to lie, that governments need to keep secrets, that uh, all sorts of, uh, I don't know, plots or mm -hmm. uh, schemes of different kinds need to be protected or negotiations. Right. But, but I think 
we can see or should be able to see the handwriting on the wall that that way of running the world mm -hmm. with governments lying and to try to upend one another is leading to our extinction, is leading to the destruction yeah. of it. Mm -hmm. And the question is, will people see that in time? There are many cases of, I don't know, tobacco addicts. Uh, they know that what they're smoking is killing them, but they continue to smoke. So mm -hmm. are we that addicted to greed and personal ambition? Yeah. You particularly take on corporations in, in your book. You point out that if a corporation is legally structured so that their yeah. prime directive is to produce a profit for their shareholders, then uh, if they need to lie or deceive uh, in order to achieve that end, as long as they're not breaking another law, and usually it's not illegal mm -hmm. uh, to, to lie, and sometimes it is, but they'll do it anyway, uh, that we have a culture in, in which corporate executives in particular are, are given this incentive yes, to lie. To lie. A absolutely. So that needs to and, be de-incentivized. Right. And I suppose one can imagine um, the scenario, what if all corporate executives had a near-death experience? Mm -hmm. How would things change then? They, 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 yeah. they Half of them would quit, I suppose. Half. Now, Back up a bit, because um, I want to get to Plato on this, but all religions have something like um, Maslowian scales of uh, moral development, mm -hmm. where at the bottom is the greedy person, the selfish person, the person who's yeah. ambitious for his own, um, uh, his own wealth uh -huh. and doesn't care about his brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. At the high end of moral development, is the person, is the saintly person who, who experiences brothers and sisters as, as his self and, and, and connects with them and, and feels for them and seeks to serve them. Mm -hmm. That's the highest level of moral development. All religions recognize this. Mm -hmm. So why has the world allowed itself in the economic sphere to be ruled by the worst among us in terms of moral development? Uh, levels of more by the greediest. Yeah. Well, it's not uh, always the case. Not always. Uh, you know, nothing is always true. Uh, <laughs> well, that maybe that's have an said interesting that. <laughs> logical paradox. Are, nothing the, is the, always true. true right? <laughs> there, there are always there are always exceptions, of course, and yeah. there have been sure. corporate executives who mm -hmm. put hearts of gold, right? Yeah. Uh, but overall, mm -hmm. um, Plato's solution that people, I think misunderstand, and I think sometimes they deliberately misunderstand it, is that spiritual wisdom and moral development in character must go hand in hand with economic power. So those who hold economic power must be the same persons who are spiritually wise. That's the, his idea of the philosopher king. But now the philosopher king also sort of lives in, in poverty, like a monk practically. It's more political than economic power, wouldn't you say? I'm guessing back in those days, political power was economic power. Mm -hmm. That the two were not mm -hmm. um, were not distinguished. Um, but the idea is that why can't we? The, our economy be run by people who are the wisest. Mm -hmm. Why can't we have people like Mother Teresa running our economy and government? There are people like that all over the world. Yeah. Right? People, it would never occur to them mm -hmm. that they could gain advantage through harming another person. Well, it does seem to me that here in the West, we've all been influenced by Adam Smith's notion of the invisible hand, that if everybody just pursues their own selfish interests, that uh, somehow, magically, that turns out to be for the yeah. benefit of the whole culture. Yeah, well, we can see now where that has led. <laughs> what self-serving nonsense, huh? I'm not sure, uh, uh, to be honest. Uh, it's It seems to me that there's a role uh, for... Uh, government that uh, unconstrained self-interest would be bad, but but if it was mod moderated, it often you know capitalism has led to uh, many good things for people. What, one, I'm okay with that argument mm -hmm. that developmentally, at one point, slavery was necessary, then feudalism, 
economically necessary, then capitalism replaced that. Uh-huh. And now something's got to replace capitalism because it's going to destroy the planet. Well, because that's it's a run, strong it's run, by, it's run by greed mm-hmm. and by raping the environment. Okay. So right. you're envisioning a, a post-materialist society will not be capitalistic. No. But it will still be providing people with goods and services. Yeah, the wealth will be equi- mm-hmm. equitably shared. Yeah. And I think psychologists would agree that people do their best, mm-hmm. work their best, when there's shared interest, so, when so there's working for a common purpose. Are, are you saying, for example, that uh, heaven is socialist? <laughs> I, I think in heaven there's the experience of oneself as not just connected with everything else, mm-hmm. but as that with a one mind hypothesis. Mm-hmm. The, the idea that, that uh, I think John Donne, the great English poet, wrote, don't mourn when you hear the bell tolling. For whom yeah. is the bell tolling? It tolls for thee. If you follow, I, I kind of like Larry Dossie's work and his uh-huh. one mind, his yes. book, The One Mind. Mm-hmm. And he presents it in very sort of easy ways to get the yeah. point. But, but I'm under the impression you're taking this spiritual concept of one mind and translating it into a, a social structure, which maybe it's not socialism, but yeah. it seems a lot like yeah. socialism. Yeah. I don't care what, what you call it. Yeah. Just the basic thing is that mm-hmm. the, the, the economic sphere yeah. must be run and controlled by those who are wisest. And yeah. kindest but you're also us. suggesting a universal recognition yes. that we are all one. A recognition of the truths that are revealed in the near-death experience and a cultural acceptance mm-hmm. that, oh, this is the real thing, that the NDE is real. Mm-hmm. What would our culture look like? How would it change yeah. if the culture as a whole recognized that the near-death experience Mm-hmm. is real. And I think it would change in the, in well, the direction. I, I know that uh, classical mystics talk about this experience of oneness with everything. Yes. Sometimes it's called cosmic consciousness. Uh, near-death experiencers often talk about uh, encountering a being of light. Uh, but do they also say they become one with that being? Yes. Uh, yes and no. Uh, it's the same as the mystical literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the West, most mystics, the Christian mystics, will say, I was one with God. Mm-hmm. But then you have some um, who will say, I became God. I was God. Mm-hmm. I experienced myself as God experiencing itself as me. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yeah. With the near-death experience literature, you have a similar thing. Most will say they were in God's presence. They felt themselves in the div- presence of the divine, mm-hmm. uh, the, the breath of God. But some will say, I became God. I, I experienced myself as the divine being. Mm-hmm. Right. So that those are the deeper aspects. Would, of it. Would, is it possible that some of them would say, yes, I experienced myself as as one with God, but then I came back and I realized that all these other people are not one with God, just me. They don't say that. <laughs> they are one with God, but don't just don't know it, uh-huh. don't, or don't, don't yeah. realize it. So being one with God is equivalent to being at one or one with all of humanity. Oh, yes. And maybe even really, to push the point, all oh, of nature. Uh, yes. Yes. You know, when we have a dream, everything in that dream is us, mm-hmm. right? Including our subjective, what we, our subjective experiences, but also the things we experience of other people in the dream, even objects in the dream. Mm-hmm. It's all consciousness. Yep. And that's what the end ears see mm-hmm. in their experience. Mm-hmm. It's all consciousness. And it's the same consciousness manifesting in different ways. I mean, this reality that we think of as so substantial is, as Shakespeare suggested, uh, like a dream. And the evidence suggests, this is why I love William James, because he was not afraid to take the methods of science and apply it to spirit. And that's why I think all our scientist friends who 
work in this area uh, um, are in love with William James mm -hmm. because they really appreciate uh, what he was doing mm -hmm. and how innovative it was and how completely different. Uh, I want to say certainly before, but even after, because as soon as James died, Harvard appointed uh, some behaviorists and and uh, psychology basically was dead for a hundred years. Made a, made a 90 <laughs> degree turn after William James. Yeah. It's sad but true. Sad, yeah. From looking at the inner experience of human beings to mm -hmm. the outer behavior of rats. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've taken this vision of uh, the uh, heavenly state as yeah, reported yeah. by the MDEers and you looked at what are its ramifications for yeah. uh, life itself, a society, and then you, and you go from birth all the way to old age and death. How, uh, what would the human lifespan be like in such a culture? Yeah, 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 basically. So child life. raising, for example. It would be very different from now. It would be about caring for the child and um, bringing forth what is within the child. Mm -hmm. um, everyone who comes here, it's not haphazard, it's not random. I believe that uh, this might be uh, Spinoza's influence on me, that there's order and uh, reason behind everything. Mm -hmm. So every... So we can talk about child rearing, but we can also talk about newly embodied souls, okay, because that's what they are. Let's start right there. Yeah. Newly embodied soul. A newly embodied soul. soul. Comes with a purpose. It wants to express something here. Don't need to know what, but, but it wants to. And the job of the environment, the caretakers of the children, is to facilitate the child's expressing what it came here mm -hmm. to express. Mm -hmm. In other words, the idea is that we all are incarnated with a purpose. Right. Mm -hmm. Unique and, to each of us. Yeah. And I state that there, the, the purposes are three, three, five. I was trying to think, well, what could, be the, what could the purposes be? But I could only find three. One is you come in with the intention of helping others. You come in with the intention of developing a talent and ability that you have. Maybe a gymnast, an athlete, a musician. You want to develop that talent, right? Um, or you come in here. You're a seeker. You, you, you're looking for for the truth. So you, you become a scientist or a mm -hmm. or, 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 or a philosopher. Mm -hmm. um, but I couldn't think that any soul would take on a body in order. To make money, in order to be greedy, in order to have power over other human beings, because from the divine perspective, well, it's like falling asleep and dreaming, and and in the dream you want to make money in the dream, yeah. but none of it is real. <laughs> none of it is real. Can't take but it with you. <laughs> definitely, and and so I, I look at well, my book looks at the. The soul that comes in and ends up as a moneymaker, mm -hmm. um, as having lost their way. Mm -hmm. Because uh, the only things that are of value to the soul, um, let's say, let's say uh, just a thought experiment, your mm -hmm. soul as pr right. prior to incarnating. Yes. Okay, I, here's, here's what I want to do. Yeah. Okay, you pick a body, you pick your parents yeah. uh, with, with agreement. Uh, that soul would never consider... Uh, Oh, I want to come in here and harm as many people as I can. I want to rise to the top of some hierarchy, none of which is real. <laughs> and the soul knows that, right? It knows it's going to mm -hmm. dim its lights in order to have a human experience, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but the purpose of that experience has to be something relevant to the soul. And making money uh, or having a lot of earthly power is not something that helps the soul in any way. As the biblical saying goes, I think I quote that somewhere, so what does it profit a man, right? And now I forget the rest of the quote. Yeah, for her to gain the world. To gain the world, but... Lose their soul. Of course, you can't lose the soul. Yeah. But while alive, you, you can sort of 
<laughs> not honor it by yeah. by living in a way that's contrary to and, it. And I, and I think in, in that phrase, the idea is that if, if you diminish your own character, your own integrity, you are losing something of your yes. soul. Yes. Um, oh, that's very strong in Plato's uh, philosophy, mm -hmm. that the person who harms another harms himself more. While here, we can harm each other's bodies. Right? We can do harm to another body. But doing harm to another's body harms the soul mm -hmm. of the one. And that harm carries over. Yeah. Uh, whereas the harm done to the other person's body does not carry over in, into anything. It doesn't damage the soul of that person. But uh, so the soul damages itself by, uh, by harming others yeah. uh, mm -hmm. while it's here. Well, here on this earthly plane, we have, we are the inheritors of centuries of warfare and oppression uh, and, and abuse of, uh, of different kinds. You're proposing a post-materialist society where, uh, as the Buddhists sometimes say, all that ancient twisted karma is no longer relevant. Right, right. Or no longer useful mm -hmm. in, in any way. No, and no longer has a grip on us. Right. Yeah. So I, I was, you know, into the writing of the book mm -hmm. uh, for what five or six years, mm -hmm. and during that process, the, the the premise of it became more and more real to me mm -hmm. as, as as I was writing it. Um, I thought it would be it was problematic or a lot of wishful thinking, and, and you know maybe that that's so. But now I really see no reason why we cannot make it on earth as it is in heaven. And, and I think you would agree that uh, William James, Spinoza, Plato, and Socrates were also pointing in that they direction. They were definitely pointing in that direction. Although, um, probably Spinoza more, was, was more traditional, uh, the traditional mystic in the sense, you got to get out of society in order to right, experience this kind of uh, clarity. He didn't say it that way, but mm -hmm. he thought it would be rare. Whereas Plato is more concerned with the social order. Yes. I mean, Spinoza's philosophy, as I understand it, which is certainly not much, is, is the idea that you have to accept whatever is. Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, because it is. <laughs> By accepting whatever is, you're aligning yourself with the divine will. Yeah, because what is, is an expression of the one mind mm -hmm. or, the, or the divine will. As much as you might disagree Dis with it. Disagree. Uh, but the acceptance of what is does not imply that what is now must be the same as what is tomorrow. It's, it's not a because, because accepting what is also means accepting your own desire to change. Yes, 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 yes. I think so. Mm -hmm. So you have Spinoza yeah. dialoguing with you about these ideas, William James, Plato, and Socrates. But they all seem, as I read your book, they all seem supportive. None of them are telling you, well, Neil, you can't go in that direction. Um, uh, right, uh, and it's certainly this direction is in Plato's most. It, it's implied in their in their philosophy. Yeah. Um, although William James certainly never asked the question, "Can we have a social order based on the values that people have when they come back from their mystical experiences?" Mm -hmm. uh, I think back then, well, even now, people think that those experience, mystical experiences. Uh, even those who believe that they're real, will occur in the monasteries or haphazardly. Mm -hmm. But but now so many people are having it, and uh, the near-death experience. And I also have to mention another, um, we didn't talk about this, but I think it is a, a game-changer in society, is the use of, uh, uh, I think now they're called entheogens. 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 Or the psychedelics. Enablers of the divine. Yes. Um, and people are having these experiences and coming back changed permanently. By just, the millions. Just one or two. And now this is available to uh, 
to everyone. <laughs> I'm under the impression, though, that while people often have profound experiences under uh, the influence of psychedelic entheogens, those experiences are not necessarily transformative in the same way that a near-death experience would be. Or if you look at the lives of the great mystics, you see that their lives were profoundly changed and they had enormous social yeah. impact. But, you know, people who took LSD um, often don't. You know, they go back to yeah. their previous yeah, I, lifestyle. I, 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 I... I want to say yes and no. I'm in general agreement. Well, you were a student of Houston yeah, Smith who yeah. studied this directly. That, you, you were one of his students at MIT when he was experimenting. I, I know. And in fact, uh, my first experience of this was with Houston. Uh -huh. I remember in his study, we took some psilocybin. I was just shy of my 20th birthday. And uh, what a fantastic setting to take this this thing that I was, I believe, was going to give me a spirit with a man I truly admired and mm -hmm. who was my teacher and guru and guide. Yeah, yeah, and one of the great philosophers of religion of the 20th century. Yeah, well, he opened my, my mind up uh, too. But in my experience, mm -hmm. I experienced the interconnectedness of all things. Um, but there was something in me that told me this is not the mystical experience. This is not what I was reading about in the Hindu and Buddhist texts, which I was also lear lear learning from him. Um, so I, I'm agreeing with you that the psychedelics, they can change people's lives uh, if done in a clinical setting mm -hmm. with guides. Um, they can also destroy people's life yeah. if done, you know, thinking at a party or something. Yeah. Now, I look like back that. on my own life, and, and I can say quite honestly, the work I'm doing right now, interviewing you, creating the New Thinking Aloud channel, yes. you, you know, acquiring a doctoral diploma in parapsychology, all, <laughs> all of that was cons consistent with and followed from uh, some of the psychedelic experiences yeah, yeah. That, that I had, as well as other non-psychedelic mystical experiences that were occurring. And I just had this thought is, you need to interview yourself. <laughs> because that, that's the base. So it, yeah. it was that direct experience. That's a direct knowing. It was yeah. a knowing that we are all interconnected, yeah. not just reading about mm -hmm. it in... in uh, well, no. let me just say parenthetically, for benefit of viewers who may not know, I have posted uh, over 160 monologues on this oh. uh, New Thinking Aloud channel. Okay. So, <laughs> so I've got I have, in effect, interviewed myself. I've got some homework to do. <laughs> um, uh, some years ago, I saw an interview with a guy. Uh, he was going to be my, my, my age. He had been a hippie. Mm -hmm. He dropped a lot of acid. Mm -hmm. And then he had had later a, near, a deep near-death experience. Mm -hmm. He was asked to compare the two. He said there's no comparison. Mm -hmm. okay. So the near-death experience is much, much deeper yeah. than the psychedelic experience. Mm -hmm which is deep yeah. <laughs> and does take you someplace. Mm -hmm. um, so another way to look at it is, well, once you're out of the body, right, it's not a uniform one-size-fits-all thing. There's as much differences and differentiation there yeah. and, and experience to be had um, outside the body as there is inside the body. Well, you know what we could call the super-sensible world. It's not all heavenly. Uh, the, some people have near-death experiences. It's, it's that's, I understand, a small number, but they experience a hellish realm. Yes. Yes. Well, just like people that can have nightmares. Yeah. Right? Right. Good people can have nightmares. Sure. So, mm -hmm. um, and, and sometimes a nightmare yeah. it turns out to be a very beneficial thing. Thing, yes. I think... The spiritual teachings, maybe Buddhist is more clear on this, is that your experiences in the next realm, um, the quality of them depends on how you live your life. Mm -hmm. um, and the measure here is always the golden rule. It's always, that's the bottom line. Are you treating people the way you would treat yourself, treating others? Or are you 
gaming the system or mm -hmm. are you taking advantage of people? Do you see people as a means to your own end? Mm -hmm. um, or do you, we're all in this together? Mm -hmm. And it's the latter orientation that leads to a peaceful yeah. um, experience in the, what do they call it, the Bardo, the mm -hmm. Bardo planes, uh, yeah. uh, the other planes. But if you live the life of you know, greed and chasing after illusions, right, then uh, as they say, when you die, you're still the same. You're the same conscious, you experience yourself as this very same consciousness in the moment after death as you were prior to death. There is neither heaven nor hell, but that the mind makes, makes it, it so. Yes. Mm -hmm. And what a beautiful statement of yeah. everything is consciousness. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Right? And But that applies to, to this life, whether we, we experience it as heaven mm -hmm. or as hell. Yeah. Um, so what you're proposing here uh, by virtue of uh, creating in great detail the idea of a post-materialist society is that we at least have the possibility of imagining a world in which uh, the the values of heaven are uh, brought down. I guess that's in the Lord's Prayer too, uh, uh, to, to have, have a heaven on earth. I, I had a friend, he's, he's out of the country now, but uh, who was a priest, mm -hmm. uh, very, very liberal. And we, we, I asked him about the, the Lord's Prayer because my interpretation um, on earth as it is in heaven yeah. was not a, a declarative statement that it is on earth as it is in heaven, but as an aspiration yes. that may it become on earth mm -hmm. as it is in heaven. So you're well, taking how, that idea seriously. Literally. Yeah. Imagine that, taking the Lord's Prayer seriously. Literally. How can we make it? Uh -huh. happen to that it is on earth mm -hmm. as it is well how is it on heaven well you go to the people the end of years what do they say and this is the William James the empirical approach yeah. uh, to it mm -hmm. what do they state uh, what are the, the common elements mm -hmm. uh, you abstract from the individual differences and you get you can get the well unconditional love mm -hmm. the interconnectedness of all beings um, the inability to hide the inability to lie, mm -hmm. uh, basically. Well, why can't we do it here on Earth? Mm -hmm. Why can't, say, the natural resources of the planet be equi 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 equally distributed, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm told that the Earth right now can produce enough food to feed everybody. So the problem that why isn't that happening, mm -hmm. it's because of the greed and personal ambition of a few people who control the distribution of goods, yeah. a relatively few. But if greed, what, what if this idea of greed and personal ambition is sort of hardwired into us biologically? It, uh, after all, if, if, if we don't eat, we die. Yeah. You know, in, in some ways, I, I think there's a spiritual source for greed. Now, I'm talking very playfully yeah. here. Um, so spiritually, in the NDE experience, say, and what mystics write, we are at home in the divine being. Mm -hmm. uh, we are eternal. There are no threats to our continued existence. That, that's a given. But when we find ourselves embodied, there are now threats to our continued existence as a body, in the yeah. form of a body, mm -hmm. not in the form that we really are, the soul, but right. in this form of a body. So we want to protect this form. And so money, of course, is the main protector because with that you can buy everything mm -hmm. you need to protect this form. Mm -hmm. So the greedy person is one who is really very fearful and wants the security of uh, this form enduring right. uh, in this world. So he thinks, well, if I have power over everybody else, then I'll be secure yes, in this form. Yes. If I have enough money, then I'll be secure of this mm -hmm. form. But the social order itself guarantees uh, security in the form. Then there's no need to run about and, 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 and um, look for money. Also, security in the, in the form is not, a, I don't want to say it's not, a, it's a necessary thing, yeah. but it's not a worthy goal because eventually the form is going to die. And we have yes, to be, we will all. We die. have to be accepting. But but surely it's it's part of biological life everywhere. Every, yeah. every bio organism uh, yeah. has a survival instinct. Um, that's that's true. 
but uh, even among human beings, <clears throat> if you look at the scales of moral development, right, we're not all the same. Right. There, there are some who, who uh, the money grubbers, they'll do anything, mm -hmm. um, you know, to make a buck to gain yeah. advantage, what they perceive as advantage over fellow human beings. Mm -hmm. At the higher end, the people who, who will not do that. So you're suggesting that that. Uh, spectrum is going to change. That spectrum is moving up upwards. Uh -huh. I see. And and so the bottom is is the is bottom is rising as the top rises through, through upright through upbringing through right uh -huh. upbringing. If the heroes of a given culture are not the gamblers and the con artists, right? Because as the little kids get their role models from the heroes, little kids also learn to lie mm -hmm. very very early. Well, you point out that as soon as you have language, you have the capability lie. of lying. So are, are you suggesting that in, in the post-materialist society, if people are no longer capable of lying, that they have no language? No, no. We still will need language. Although that's an interesting question. I, I don't really consider it in the book, but we can probably safely assume there'll be more, there'll be less need to use language mm -hmm. as there'll be more you know, I can just look at you and see what you're feeling, mm -hmm. right? Or people will be more psychic, yeah. to be more open uh, to mm -hmm. these things. Be because language implies the capability of lying, even yes. if... Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and maybe that's part of the point of our growth and evolution. It's one thing to not lie when you can't, <laughs> <laughs> because your inner thoughts and emotions are visible to everyone yeah. in, in heaven. And it's another thing to not lie uh, because you choose not to. Mm -hmm. I, and I think that's maybe part, that's a very deeper yeah. uh, um, uh, sense of evolution. But, um, but lying, you know, you've got to really identify with this form, with the physical form yeah. thing, I am this body and its personality. Mm -hmm. To the extent that you see yourself as more than just the personality and its body, mm -hmm. Uh, to that extent, you'll be less concerned about lying, mm -hmm. right? Because I mean, children learn to lie at an early age if they do something uh, for which they know they'll be punished. People lie to avoid punishment. That, uh, that's one reason, you know, your hand gets caught in the proverbial cookie jar. But there's another thing that's just as insidious. Um, uh, so, so let's say uh, Johnny and Susie, siblings, mm -hmm. get into a, an argument and... Um, Mom steps in or dad steps in and say, I'll, I'll stop that. And, and Susie, you apologize to Johnny for, for taking his candy. Susie doesn't want to apologize. Mm -hmm. But to please her mother or to, you know, she's forced to say, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. But she doesn't mean it. Yeah. And that's among the earliest. Uh, you, you think it's a good thing to teach your children to apologize uh, for doing something uh, harmful, hurtful yeah. to another mm -hmm. child. But it's not unless the child actually feels it. Yeah. So how do you get Susie to feel it? Well, that's education. Mm -hmm. That requires a context with other children. Yeah. Uh, so I have children in group therapy from age two and three <laughs> where they <laughs> talk about mm -hmm. what happened during the day, where they uh -huh. felt good, where they felt bad. Uh -huh. uh, how did it feel to you when, um, when Johnny took uh, this? How, how did it feel... Uh, to you when, when Susie zipped up your, your jacket and when you couldn't figure out how to do it. Right. So in the post-materialist culture, self-knowledge becomes uh, something that's actually taught. Yes. That somewhere I, I write that there's no problem for which adults will see a therapist uh, that cannot be prevented mm -hmm. through early childhood um, education. Uh -huh. And that the most important so the three most important things about early childhood education are emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence, and emotional intelligence. The ability to know what it is that you're feeling, and the ability to express that in words. Mm -hmm. With that ability, uh, see, see, that's an ability that atrophies as people grow, especially for boys and men, where they conceal those feelings of vulnerability, mm -hmm. uh, those feelings that they think other boys might not approve of. Uh, and then they grow up, and they become sort of empty shells. Just, mm -hmm. just stop. Uh, women fare a little better in, in our culture, yeah. but maybe, maybe uh, not not that much. So, with emotional intelligence, to be able to know what it is that that you're feeling, and to identify it, and to locate the feeling in the body, mm -hmm. um, 
comes the ability, I think, to know how other people are feeling. Mm -hmm. Now, we can sort of sense in a general way what other people are feeling through body language and facial expressions. But what would we like to go more deeply and to really yeah. see a person's feelings as clearly as we can see the expression? Well, well, my philosophy about that is that you can't know another person more than you know yourself. That's right. That's right. Which shows how we are all interconnected with, with one another. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, I wonder if the reverse is true, but, but perhaps not. That you can know yourself. Uh, without knowing of it. But I, but I think the two go, the two very, really go, to go together. I, w I would imagine that they go together. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So, so we're talking now about a society, I have to assume, where uh, child abuse, for example, doesn't exist. No, doesn't exist. No. We currently live in a culture where I'm, I'm going to guess a healthy percentage of young children suffer from emotional or physical oh. abuse. I, I imagine probably 25, 30 percent. I, I think it's more than that. Mm -hmm. um, there's overt abuse, yeah. you know, and then there's a kind of abuse where the child's needs are not being met. Mm -hmm. um, the parents are very busy yeah. and they Make sure, you know, have you brushed your teeth? Did you do your homework? Did you do all these task-oriented stuff? Yeah. But not, what does it feel like? You just turned six years old. How are you feeling inside? Mm -hmm. Right? Where are you happy? Where, where are you unhappy? So to get the child, to give the child room mm -hmm. to express themselves fully and yeah. to encourage the the outer articulation of their real inner life. At a whole society-wide level. Yes, at a whole social-wide yeah. level. What, education what a wonderful begins, dream. Yeah. Education begins in, in mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. And of course, it, it assumes that people are, that the social is in place, and so right. the teacher of those child. I, I know, you're not talking about how we go from here, here to there. Right, you're that's a different about, question. About <laughs> There, what About there it. would be like, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say in in a society a million years more advanced <laughs> than ours. Uh, <laughs> we don't have that much time. <laughs> Maybe twenty years. <laughs> well, that, that's a separate issue. Yeah, because the, the issue is being forced, mm -hmm. and I think the human race is being asked: Do you want to continue with this sort of the human experiment, mm -hmm. experiment, or should we bring it to an end right now? Mm -hmm. Um, the suffering of humans is just enormous. And it's all caused by um, my favorite villains, the, the greed and ambition. Um, In other words, it's self-inflicted. It's, it's, it's self-inflicted, it's self yeah. But you seem to be suggesting that if we aren't able to make this transition in the relative near Short term, time, yeah. not a million years from now, but in, in the next generation or two, the human race may not survive. I, I, I correct. I, I feel that. Uh, and, and paradoxically, it seems to me, if uh, people make a change because we think that's the only way we can survive, that's not the right motive. That the change can't be made based on fear. I'm thinking about that. <laughs> You, you know, there's that movie Scared Straight uh, or something like that. That, uh, oh my God, look what we're doing! Let's we got to stop now and 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 vote only for candidates that talk about loving one another, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, on a global on a global level, mm -hmm. uh, vote only for candidate for people who talk about making the earth green. Um, so I think one can be shocked into waking up. Uh -huh. um, uh, uh, from this. But then uh, we do have the near-death experiencers yeah. who are coming from love mm -hmm. and from understanding and from really wanting to bring heaven. Now, now I've interviewed Earth. quite a number of near-death experiencers and I get the impression it often takes them decades to integrate that experience and change their life. It's not as if any of them are able to you know, turn around the next day and become a spiritual teacher of some sort. It, it's a very long and difficult process. I think that, that, that's true. I, I think in some ways 
Evan has had it easier than most in, mm -hmm. in terms of being out there as a spiritual teacher so relatively soon after his Relatively his soon, but still, experience. years. Um, I've known two or three Andy years personally. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one is seven years out. And she's now saying, I can see why people told me it takes seven years. <laughs> I'm still not done. Yeah. And another one um, was a colleague, actually. He was a professor in the history department. And um, this is, was a very powerful experience for me. Um, we were on some committee. We had to do some report on some program or whatever, whether it was meeting in schools or whatever. So I went to his office. And I was coming right from the class, my class carrying Moody's book. Raymond Moody's book. book life After Life, yeah. which I was trying to conceal in a way because, you know, it's not really proper <laughs> academic <laughs> stuff. And, uh -huh. and, um, and, and so I was going to somebody in another department to his office. Of course, that's the first thing he sees. Oh, that's you got Raymond Moody's book. And I, said, and I sort of said a little sheep. Like, yeah, I was using my death and dying class. And he says, well, I've had a near-death experience. Uh -huh. We forgot about the report that we were supposed to do, and it was three hours of just intense, very, very intense conversation. And I thought I had believed it was real. But when I talked to Steve, he looked me right in the eye and said, I was there, it's real. The level of my belief went even higher mm -hmm. than, than I thought was possible. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Well, I, I do know this, that the, the videos on this channel by near-death experiencers are uh, widely watched. They're amongst yeah. the most popular. People really resonate when they hear those And stories. what does that tell you? That People deep within hungry. everybody's soul is the knowledge that the near-death experience is right. That, it, that, it's like it awakens that, in many yes, people I, a, a resonance. That's right. And Plato once said you could only teach people what they already know, <laughs> remind them of all of what they already yeah. know, and that's what the NDE is. People watch this. Oh, uh -huh. and that's in effect what your book is doing. Yeah, perhaps your eight hundred page dialogue with Socrates, Plato, Spinoza, and William James. In many ways, is it feels that way. It feels like yes. Let me remind you. <laughs> if you look within, you'll see you already know this. And I think. In the process of writing it, I was reminding myself, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps most of all. You um, know, I, we should mention, Neil, that uh, yes, you wrote it as a creative project, and as a teacher of philosophy, you've taught the Spinoza and William James and Plato right. and Socrates, but there was a sense, you even got some confirmation, surprisingly, unexpectedly, from a trans medium that maybe you were in touch with something more, something larger than just your own imagination, yeah. your own educated imagination. I had no outline. I had no plan for it. I just showed up at my computer and wrote the thoughts that came to me. I did not, so unlike my namesake, Neil, Donald Walsh, mm. his conversations with God. Um, you didn't hear voices. I wasn't hearing a voice separate from my own. Mm -hmm. They come as thoughts in my own mind. Yeah. Um, so subjectively, I don't have any grounds for saying it was really them. Mm -hmm. And I certainly taught those guys for so many years, <laughs> you know, 40 years, mm -hmm. that I feel that they're really, they were my, my three, uh, four favorite philosophers. Mm -hmm. So I feel I've somehow been internalized, well, this is how they would think, or this is what William might say about this. Or But you write about them as if they're friends. Yeah, that's how it feels. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's how it feels. Um, and now, because of my own research interest in, in mediumship, you know, and uh, knowing both Gary and Julie personally, and Gary Schwartz. Schwartz and Julie Bichel, mm -hmm. um, and knowing some mediums uh, 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 personally, there's no doubt in my mind that it's real. Mm -hmm. um, so I have to be open to it. Well, in my own case, yeah. could, could it be? Uh, I, I don't want to... So on the one hand, there's perhaps a false modesty that mm -hmm. says... Well, we Those don't guys have to would make never. Too much of a point. Yeah, right. Who, who am I that these guys would want to yeah. uh, come through me? So that that tendency not to want to believe it. Mm -hmm. But I've had experiences with um, three mediums independently of one another at different times, in which they picked up on it. 
I didn't ask them about the book, but they picked up on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think you you report one medium said, "I see a, a man dressed in white robes, and he's working with you on a book project." This this was uh, so before I began writing the book, mm -hmm. I'd been I wrote a series of short papers, and by short, twenty to thirty thousand words. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, between thirty and fifty pages. And I've got about seven or eight of them. I think a few are pretty good. But I had a sense when I was doing that this is preliminary to something. I didn't know what, but preliminary to something. And um, so it's been maybe 20 years that I've been exploring this mm -hmm. um, this form of uh, writing. First mm -hmm. it was just me and Plato, and then Socrates comes in, and then Spinoza, and then, then um, William James. Um, so... There was a period of two years where I hadn't written anything. And I think it might have been longer. Ken remember Ken Ring recollects that it was three that I told him it was three years. Mm -hmm. Ken Ring, the uh, great researcher yeah. of the near-death uh, experience, near, yeah. That, that I told him because he recounts our conversation about that mm -hmm. in one of his writings. And maybe I was just too embarrassed to say for three years I did nothing. And then uh, somebody tells me about the Spiritualist Church, which I knew of. It's, it's a part of Americana history, the Spiritualist Movement in the late 19th century, and William James uh, was involved somewhat. Deeply. Where the pastors were all trained mediums. Uh -huh. But I had thought they went extinct. Uh, they died sort of around the time William James died. Yeah. But I realized that they were alive and well, and, and there was a church in Chicago. And I, I went there. And... Everyone gets a reading, gets a short reading at the end of the service. Um, when it came to me, she she didn't know me. I, I had just walked in, and she said, there's a gentleman here. Oh, she's also, uh, she's a marvelous human being. So she's an African-American woman from the south side of Chicago, and when she gets excited, her accent uh, come, comes through. So she said with some excitement, there's a gentleman here wearing a white robe, who's been assisting you with a, with a, um, a writing project, and he says to stop dilly-dallying around and get back to it. Now, what do you do when you hear something like that? I, I, I had no idea that it that was, no thought that it was real, that it might be real. Mm -hmm. um, but here's this woman, she know, doesn't know me, yeah. right? And, and she says this. Well, it was the right thing to say, apparently. Well, apparently, because my left brain went through every possible... You know how it, how it does that. Mm -hmm. How could she possibly have known in, in an ordinary way? Yeah. And so there's got to be somebody that we both know in common who, uh, who told her. <laughs> and there was one person that we both did know in common. Uh -huh. That's how I had heard of the church. Mm -hmm. And I went to ask her. I, I almost did. Did you tell her? Well, she didn't know. I wasn't going around telling people I was, uh, you know, uh, writing with, uh, talking with to Plato or Socrates. Yeah. I didn't want people to think I was nuts. <laughs> so, so nobody really knew. Uh -huh. um, it, it, it's the, the left brain, the logical mind, it goes through every logical possibility of how, how she could have known this and then comes to a stop. Mm -hmm. It just stops. Yeah. And in that stopping, something opened up within me. I said, okay, and I started writing. <laughs> mm -hmm. There was one more shorter paper yeah. of about 50 pages, and then the book. An 800-page book, well worth <laughs> reading. Well, Dr. Neil Grossman, thank you so much for sharing these insights. It's cool. very exciting. I recommend the book highly. I think of it as, truly as a work of genius. Thank you. I do not. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you're being well, honest. No, I, I'm not in a position to evaluate it from an external point of view. Of course. I, I just uh, showed up and wrote yeah. the first thing. It's a first draft, the first thing that was mm -hmm. coming to my mind in the moment. Well, that's the first thing everybody needs to do is just show up. Yeah, I think so. You know, there's a phrase in the Hebrew scriptures when God calls uh, to people, and when they answer, they say, Hineni. That's a Hebrew word. It means, here I am. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's nice. Also, I don't want to say this. I was retired from the university, uh, except maybe for the first uh, 50 or 80 pages. Mm -hmm. So I was free from any kind of external structure. Mm. 
um, I wasn't writing it for tenure, mm -hmm. for salary, uh -huh. for promotion, because that was all gone yeah. in the past. Yeah. So I was just writing it as an expression of my own interest and own understanding mm -hmm. um, and own joy. Uh -huh. uh, it you were was being true to yourself. It was a joyous process because I never knew where it was going to take me. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was often quite surprised uh, where it was It was going. being written in the very spirit that you were writing about. I would, yeah, I would say, perhaps. and I, I might just add parenthetically that there's uh, that sense of not being beholden to authority yes. figures uh, is, is also true of this video channel as, as well. Yeah. It gives me the liberty to say, you know, what's deep within my own heart and soul. Yeah. And to share that with our viewers. And Dr. Neil Grossman, I'm very happy to be able to share you and Thank your you. experience. Thank you with, so much for having me. It's with been our a joy. Viewers. Thank you for being with me. And thank you for being with us. Mm -hmm.